Well, welcome to this connecting conversation. And it's going to be a very good full one because we've got time to both have a fresh conversation ourselves as well as to involve you with your thinking on this topic. Um, I'm Valerie Sinison. I'm a psychoanalyst, writer and child psychotherapist. And I'm very delighted to be introducing Catherine Quamby because her books have had such um, a major impact on the field that takes up most of my time, which is disability therapy. Um, and can I ask, first of all, how many people uh, were able to read Getting Away with Murder or The Scapegoat? Has, how many? So it, that's quite useful. Then it means people are, are getting a chance to hear afresh. Um, but whilst, whilst crime through perceiving somebody to be disabled was accepted in America, ironically, um, in uh, the late 1960s. It was mainly used in some areas over uh, gay hate crime, and there was a small extension. It's because of Catherine that this has been noted and accepted in the UK. So where vulnerable victims with a disability were yelled at, called spastic, the sort of things that um, myself and colleagues working with adults and children with disabilities would hear in therapy every week what, what they were facing. This was called uh, somebody troubled or a neighbourhood disturbance. No one was isolating what the extra feeling would be for being criminally attacked with one's disability being, being the cause of it. Um, so that the, this book had a huge impact. This, this is the first time I've actually met Catherine, so I was sort of all thrilled with the impact of, of her work and the huge amount of newspaper coverage on this. Um, because it's actually affected Parliament, it's affected all campaigning organisations, and it's led to greater confidence in self-advocacy groups. So I, I did, as president of the Institute of Psychotherapy and Disability, I did want to thank you formally um, for the impact this has had. In therapy situations, we are looking at the emotional meaning of what's happened for someone. And I'm always met humbled by the fact of where the law says, whether you're mad or bad, whether you could help it or couldn't help it, this is a crime. That has the most profound therapeutic impact um, on children and adults. And Catherine's work has, has led to people realising a crime has happened. Uh, Catherine has been a, cr a crusading journalist, a really able to pick up a topic um, and get national interest, even when it's unpopular. Her most recent book is about travellers, about the Roma, and she's going to be talking about that as well. Uh, and she's also done work on Rwanda and honour killings. So we've got a chance of hearing a lot of views, but we thought we'd start... Um, on the subject that, that linked us both, um, which is disability hate crime and what the s specific ingredients are about that. And could you say as well for people who haven't read it, what is it that got 
you interested in this? What sparked it off and how did you then go about it? Um, there was a case in 2007, it was June 2007, and I just started work at this um, disability magazine, um, which is actually in Islington as well, um, uh, and uh, it was press day, and um, it, it was a case again, and it wasn't named as disability hate crime, it was just a case, and it was of a, a young man with epilepsy, he was called Kevin Davis, and he'd been tortured and kept in a shed, and this was in the Forest of Dean. Um, and uh, he'd been he'd been starved for several weeks. I think it was six weeks. He'd been um, burnt with cigarette butts, and then he'd been filmed as like a hostage. He'd been filmed as if it was a hostage video. And um, the three attackers, who had called themselves his friends, actually, um, had um, uh, been sentenced to seven or uh, seven and eight years for. Um, different crimes but they were basically um, wrongful imprisonment and I remember looking at the sentences and thinking those sentences are really light because that's four to five years inside because it's half a sentence that you usually serve and it just didn't seem to describe what had happened to Kevin Davis in any meaningful way and I think that naming the crime is actually is really important as Valerie says actually saying what happened to you has a name um, is very important. I found this again and again when I went to see parents and other bereaved relatives throughout my kind of journey through disability hate crime after the case of Kevin Davis was people saying people didn't take what happened to our relatives seriously. And, you know, so we felt that his memory or her memory had never been honoured properly. So it all started with Kevin Davis and his family, Elizabeth James, his, his, his mother, who remarried, um, and Greg, his stepfather, who had looked after him and loved him throughout his childhood. And um, he'd grown up a kind of happy childhood in the Forest of Dean. Um, but his epilepsy had had an effect on his childhood in that from, I think, um, his early childhood, he'd had, you know, he'd, he'd fallen over bumped his head, as, as children with epilepsy would be prone to do, and he, his um, seizures became more and more um, severe as he got older, and the medication wasn't necessarily appropriate and didn't seem to control his condition very well. So that meant that even though he was kind of a bright lad, he didn't get the qualifications he might have got, and he dropped out of school in the end. He left without qualifications and became slightly socially isolated, and that's kind of important because... Um, that led on to why he was desperate to have these three so-called friends. So in 2006, he drifted into the sort of orbit of these three people who took up with him. And then they decided that he um, was responsible for um, overturning a three-wheeler car belonging to one of them, Amanda Bagus. Um, that was her name. Bagus, yes. Um, and so they decided that that was a crime and that he would have to pay money for overturning her car. Everyone knows how fragile three-wheeler cars are, but um, every week out of his benefits money. So one of the reasons they held him hostage was that they wanted to steal his benefits money. So you, she would record these diary entries in a diary that she was given, um, ironically, by a mental health team because she had mental health, uh, a mental health condition and they would put those, it would be things like she had very childish handwriting, things like got money from Prick, they'd call him Prick, paid Sky. Um, 
It's okay, no worries. Um, and uh, or, and so they would use his money to. They not only paid for this rewheeler, but for other things. They would use it for to pay the uh, Sky Dish money and so on. So Kevin eventually they starved him. They I think they chained him up, and eventually they were kept him in this garden shed. And eventually he was so emaciated that when he died. The ambulance service couldn't establish and the coroner couldn't establish whether he had died because of an epileptic seizure or whether he had died because of the ill treatment that he had received. So that was the reason that the CPS, which is the Crown Prosecution Service, who had event- originally charged the three with murder, dropped that and decided to charge, him, charge them with wrongful imprisonment, which they knew they could get a sentence for. So that case led me on to many other cases, but it was the beginning of that journey into kind of disability hate crime and um, that beginning of that identification that there's something about that social isolation that some disabled people experience that is incredibly dangerous and and can lead into these crimes. That was the kind of beginning of the whole thing for me and led on to this kind of subset of disability hate crime, which has become known as mate crime, uh, um, a, a name that lo- no one really likes, but is possibly better known as grooming, mm. but of um, people with learning difficulties or disabilities who are um, groomed by so-called friends and then you know, quite heinously exploited, often right up to the murder. So that was the beginning. Are you surprised by the impact your books had yeah, I was really surprised because I just set out to, to build a, a case and the first case was Kevin's and then I just thought there must be other cases like this and I was quite annoyed by the Crown Prosecution Service because I felt they weren't taking Kevin's case seriously enough and I felt his family had been badly let down and then I thought if, this, if Kevin's case is what I think it is, a disability hate crime. And I remember talking to John Pring, who you probably know from his work on long care. He'd looked at institutional violence, which is violence against um, people with uh, disabled people in institutions. And he'd said, I think what happened to Kevin was a disability hate crime, but I don't know. And he basically kind of... He was, at that stage, the news... uh, the editor of Disability Now, as the news editor, but I kind of almost didn't do any work except work on disability hate crime for the next six months, kind of let me loose to do that. Um, I just set, set about finding more cases, and I wasn't that surprised to find other cases of other men at that stage who were being targeted by so-called friends and exploited. And then uh, that was the kind of first thing that we did, was we, we, sh- we found five, I found five cases... And, and, and we published them under the headline, If These Aren't Hate Crimes, What Are? And they were all very, very similar. They were all killed with overwhelming violence by four out of the five by friends. There was an escalating pattern of violence that wasn't picked up. None of them were prosecuted. Investigated prosecutors are sentenced as hate crimes. Um, and... Um, they, yeah, no, no one ever had ever thought of them as disability hate crimes. And then we built up, then we decided to kind of build up a dossier of other crimes that weren't just, um, uh, you know, these uh, sort of crimes by friends. And that's when we started finding lots of crimes that had been missed all over the country. And we started to think this is a systemic, systemic problem. And no one is admitting that this exists. It was an invisible crime. 
and that not only um, is there concern at the early deaths of people with a disability, partly because of the knowledge there used to be that with certain disabilities, mortality would be seriously affected, but it was as if that allowed other neglect to come in, but also the uh, abuse rate is higher than other groups. That um, in, in I did one survey at the Tavistock Clinic and one at St George's Hospital, uh, and it was, regardless of the reason for referral, 80% had been abused. And where I did spot checks in some individual schools, it was a similar percentage. And some parents uh, have said to me that, that they are expecting something horrible to happen to their child at school uh, because the the second most uh, common group to uh, abuse someone with a disability are other people with a disability um, where the the victim has become the victim perpetrator and in hospitals and residential settings people without a capacity to filter what's happened uh, passing passing it on in some way but the abuse rate and the lack of the way that was taken up by the police um, is also shocking in that you can almost see the feeling of well they don't really feel it do they the same as if they were normal a kind of response like that so that there's there is something profoundly systemically wrong which takes us to that sort of painful question of what what is it what is it about this difference that can make people uh, more vulnerable than than many others who are also different in certain ways and i wondered i i know what are what are the ones i came to from that very um particular frame of therapy rooms and my grandmother had a learning disability on one side so there's there's a lived experience of, of, of that but what reasons did you find the most significant for the fear and hate around this difference I think that's a really good question. There's one other bit that needs mentioning, which is that I think there's also a third component, which is the unreliable witness component, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is uh, to, very much to this day, even if you report a um, disability hate crime, um, especially if you have a learning difficulty or mental health condition, the CPS will, look, uh, will assess your evidence and will ask, are you a reliable witness? Um, and they will think very, very carefully about whether they will progress that because they will wonder about how they will test your evidence in court, about cross-examination and so on. They will, they will be very careful about taking that case forward. And there's been lots of cases of young women, especially with learning difficulties, who've clearly been sexually assaulted. The evidence has been really quite robust, and those cases have not gone forward to trial because the CPS has not wanted to take them forward. And the evidence has been quite good. Um, and, and, and to be fair, there was a very, very good case, I think it was in the West Country, where Alison Saunders, who's now the um, uh, uh, DPP, Director of Public Prosecutions, did take a big case of several um, young women, all young women, 
who were being um, sexually abused by a bus driver forward and got a conviction against him, but that was unusual. Mm. We know there's systemic problems with um, women, young, young girls and women with learning difficulties being sexually assaulted and they're not going forward to trial. So I think there is a separate question to what you're saying, which is just people know they can get away with that. Okay, so there's that. But I think there is something, and, and there is this issue with the disability movement generally about there's this, um, and I, I, I kind of consider myself part of the movement and I consider that we shouldn't always talk about vulnerability because I think people get attacked not, you know, partly because people do dislike and fear disabled people, not because disabled people are innately vulnerable, but I think sometimes people are also attacked because they are vulnerable in situations. So there are situations where everyone is vulnerable. Behind closed doors, everyone is particularly vulnerable. And we know this, you know, there's been lots of academic work done, and we know this from uh, lots of scandals that are now in the public eye, which is you close a door, abuse will happen behind the door, you know, because, um, you know, if people don't know what's going on behind the door, abuse is much more likely to happen. And we know this from... Irving Goffman's work right back in the 1960s and nothing has changed since if people think they can get away with things and there's no witnesses some people will take advantage of that situation and um, I suspect some of the the most heinous abuse carried out by Jimmy Savile will have been done at Broadmoor because he will have got away with it rather than on the road where there was more public scrutiny of him because he thought you know at Broadmoor vulnerable uh, witnesses who are going to be seen as unreliable, so he's more able to do what he is accused of doing. So I think that is one question. I think that's one part of it. So clearly, if you're in an institution, you're more likely to be targeted, and that is somewhere where everyone is vulnerable, whether you're old, whether you're a child, whether you're a disabled person. So I think that is part of well, it. The most dangerous place for a child is in their own home. <laughs> that's not that's not um, wanted to be thought about because it's uh, much nicer to think of stranger danger, which is government and families together fighting for children, rather than thinking what's in a family, what gender, what level of physical violence against the child. Um, but there's been an irony that on the old the old style bins where we started working to deinstitutionalize um, adults where they could talk about the abuse that went on in the wards every evening and where staff would come in um, on being moved to homes in the community where there's much more a closed door um, that uh, adults that have said at least on the ward everyone knew who it had happened to you had a witness, but in your nice new home in the community, when your door's closed and people have learnt about privacy and not, not opening someone's door, then there's, it's far harder to get a prosecution, which is, which is something quite different. But um, I didn't bring along, I should have, but if people email me, um, now Sheila Hollins, now, uh, now Baroness Sheila Professor Hollins, um, and I, in the Books Without Words series, have got a series of three on going to court, which is um, for children and adults with a disability to see just from the pictures the process uh, as part of learning what to do and how to deal with the police officer and voice 
um, which began to campaigning for better legal treatment for adults with a disability was started by one loving mother, Julie Boniface, whose daughter was abused by her mencap worker. Uh, and when she was in court, because she'd been prepared, and she got the horrible adversarial questioning, which it still goes on, um, you're a liar, aren't you? You've made it up, haven't you? He didn't do that. You wished he had. She, she just said, he's a liar. He hurt me, and I'm not a liar. But there you had a secure love child with the whole family behind her, able to stand up for herself in, in that kind of way. And in a similar way, when one we got one uh, conviction in one hospital, a whole group of adults that had been abused, and I was preparing them for the press over what would it be like being asked a question you might not want to answer, and supposing there were lots of press there, supposing nobody was there, and nobody was there. And it was a large case, with, and, and again, they were aware that if they hadn't got a learning disability, it would have been a huge issue, a huge case. So the issue of victim reliability is used wrongly uh, by some inadequately trained uh, vulnerable victim coordinators who don't bring in a disability specialist and feel, oh, well, she can't say anything because she didn't know what telling the truth meant, that had no idea of saying things like, is it morning or evening? Um, how do you know? Because it's light out there. If I told you it was really evening, what would you say? Well, it isn't evening because it's light out there. You know, there are so many other ways of showing how someone can give evidence, but we put uh, people in difficult positions by not training them over this. But, of course, we're coming to the sort of painful part over hate and why hate is there and why does it go to particular groups. And if we start thinking of... Um, the, the, the tiny baby trying to deal with overwhelming feelings and uh, mothers will know the way a child can sort of feed happily, for example, at one breast and then be fighting as if a monster was attacking them when put on the other breast and that a split has happened, that it's too overwhelming for everything to be wonderful and a division has to be made. And one of the tasks of becoming an adult is to deal with those conflicting split bits of this is good, this is bad, and to be able to have a mix. And the more insecure the attachment, the more impossible that is, the more there's a need to project everything you can't bear about yourself onto another. And it, it was Moses Maimonides in... Uh, was it the 11th century? I'm not sure what period he was, who said, if a man keeps calling another man a bastard, that means it is likely that he himself is a bastard and can't deal with the issue. And, of course, somebody that can't physically or mentally protect themselves in the same way as the average 
will also be an ideal receptacle for somebody to project their own insecurities onto. Yeah, I mean, we don't have any perpetrator research yet because the government uh, said it would actually commission some after the Equality and Human Rights Commission uh, did its report, Hidden in Plain Sight, uh, in 2012, I think it was. Um, But it it ran into a problem, which was that prisoners don't have to um, uh, cooperate with um, uh, uh, the National Offender Monitoring Service. So they didn't actually get... I don't think they got any volunteers or not enough volunteers to to get statistically significant perpetrator analysis of disability hate crime. So what we're left with is really analysing cases to look at offender profiling, really, which is something that the FBI does. So what you get, what the FBI does when it looks at cases is it at least gives you some sense of the age of the offender, the ethnicity of the offender, the location where the offence was carried out, whether the offender has a disability or not, um, but, uh, the employment of the offender and so on. So you can get some sense of what the offender was like. And I did a, I did a bit of an analysis of, of offenders, and, um, and so does the Equality and Human Rights Commission in, in its report. And um, there are some interesting differences um, between disability hate crime perpetrators and perpetrators of other hate crimes, as far as we can tell. And this is very, very sort of... Um, sketchy research and I have to stress this but we don't have as I say a big analysis Um, it would be great if there was but it it is interesting to note that in some of the worst crimes there were women present and in many of the cases instigators of of some of the worst Mm. violence and I think that's very interesting and that's also true actually if you look at some child abuse cases some of the worst kind of child abuse cases you do actually see a number of women present and no mm. one really knows what that, that means, but you're seeing that more and more as people start to understand child abuse more, you're seeing a growing number of women present. I mean, no one really knows what this means, but people have started to note that. And I don't think there's been much academic research on it, but it has kind of been something that people have said, well, what does this signify? And I think there's some research going on into it. But certainly it does seem to be true in disability hate crime that the women are present, women are instigators and definitely have incited some of the worst crimes. Again, it is striking that a number of the worst perpetrators are disabled people. And it, you, know, you have to kind of be honest about this. What that means, again, we don't know because they haven't really talked about the motivations. Now, the reason we don't have any good analysis of motivation, I think, is because investigating officers until recently weren't really trained, I think, in... Um, interviewing people uh, who had committed these crimes. And that training is kind of going on now. But And I think over the last few years, I think training in, in investigating disability hate crime has really come on leaps and bounds and prosecuting disability hate crime. But that's, you know, so we, I think over the next few years, investigating officers will be asking much better questions when people, when they're sitting opposite a, uh, an alleged offender in a cell, you know, in a police station and asking them, you know, the questions that an investigating officer might ask. And I think you might get some more interesting motivation questions then. Um, We know quite a lot about why people commit rape, domestic violence, race hate, homophobic hate. We don't really know why people commit disability hate, but we can kind of make some guesses. And I think... I think there is a certain dislike and fear and contempt of disability because people don't want to become disabled people themselves. 
they find disability funny. They, you know, I think I isolated that as kind of the freak show element, which you see in a lot of the crimes. Scapegoating mechanism is very clear in a lot of um, disability, disability hate crimes. There's this kind of clear line going right back to um, Middle Ages, which is the kind of witch hunt element as well. So I think we can see some kind of quite interesting archetypes that run way back through time, right back to classical times, um, how disabled people were perceived in classical times um, and, and used or abused that are still present even today as kind of tropes or memes and still and that, that people are not even perhaps consciously aware of but are kind of present and haven't really been talked about very consciously and are therefore still quite powerful. But I'd say those things are interesting. You know, the other thing about the perpetrators, this is true of other hate crime offenders, is they tend to be quite young um, and um, quite, you know, quite poor, not necessarily in employment. But these are things that you would say of hate crime offenders for any hate crime. But, you know, most people tend to commit violent crimes when they're young anyway. You know, most, hate, most offenders of violent crimes are young and tend not to. Well, 14 year old older. boys are the biggest criminal group cross culturally yeah. and internationally. <laughs> so yeah. the sort of yeah. hormones and. Uh, teenage feelings and uh, difficulty in regulating yeah um and that all all crime comes from an unhappy place but uh, speaking um as a therapist that's done long-term work with pedophiles who really should be called pedophobes because they are hating their own child self in another child um that the we're not very good at dealing with uh, victim perpetrators um, because it's so amazing that with Professor Kevin Brown estimating that it's only one in every 14 people who are raped who go on and pass on violence to others. 13 out of 14 deal with their wounds in whatever way they do um, that's quite remarkable. The problem is it's that one in 14 um, can do a very large number of crimes. We used to think it was a one-off, and it, it isn't. It, it, it carries on. Um, but in the long-term group, uh, for example, that Sheila Hollins and I ran, uh, it was the despair and disgust at the self. And seeing an image of oneself as disgusting, comical, laughed at. So if we think of the colonel tells off the sergeant who tells off the private who kicks a stone, the stone is the child, the person with the disability, the unwanted person, uh, the gay, the Jew, the, the traveller, the redhead, whatever is not wanted in that group. But it does seem that from the Cartesian period, we're more frightened of not having a mind that operates at the same level as the average than not having a body that does in terms of where there's a physical disability but no intellectual impairment. There's very different feelings than where somebody is intellectually disabled. So there are identity fears of what is a person who am I? Should this person exist? That it takes the hardest thing to come out in therapy 
um, and no change happens until it's been worked on, is the patient's fear the therapist really wishes they were dead. The, the fear that somebody, that they should have been aborted, that we think we're so different to the eugenics movement and we're not, because people, well, parents with uh, 40 and 50-year-olds with a disability going, still having to fight for help and, and being told utterly outrageous things. You chose to have that child. You could have had a, a termination. In, nothing like you are the nation's child, but if the child has come out wrong, it's your child. So there's the, the, the fear around, will it be catching? Will I get it too? The fear in maternity classes to even prepare for disability because it might upset the mothers. And I think the most therapeutic question anyone can ask a friend, family member or patient um, who's pregnant, what's the baby you most long to have? What's the baby you're most frightened of having? Because if you pop the fantasy ideal baby or fantasy demon baby, people are much better at facing reality. But if we were to go around saying, what would you be most scared of having? What disability? There'd be a different family reason for everyone. Um, but to actually look at it, and why is that one frightening, tells us something about our own families. So this eugenics fear, this toxic death-making wish, is something awful at the heart of the emotional experience of disability when people do long-term therapy work. I think that's true. I mean, if you look at the um, the early Middle Ages, there was lots about the changeling, the idea of the changeling, and that led on to, um, you, if you look at, uh, I think it's... Um, is it Malaeus Maleficarum and the idea yes. of the changeling and then Martin Luther writing about babies being swapped and that obviously came over here and there was lots about babies being swapped. And, and, and he had a baby burnt at the stake. Yeah, and, and that was all about really disabled babies. So if you had a disabled baby, the baby, the baby was a changeling. And so that's exactly what Valerie's just been talking about. The baby was effectively a demon baby quite often. And, and so both at the beginning of life and end of life, there was a great fear of disability. So women who had cancer, for instance, um, and men, if they had blotches on, their, blotches on their skin, which is something I write about here, they were much more likely to be identified as witches. Um, so, um, in fact, the first big, the biggest witch hunt in England started with a one-legged woman in um, in uh, in Essex, um, who was actually hanged, and she had to sort of be helped up the, to the gallows oh. because she couldn't walk up to the gallows on her own. But um, you know, there was a over um, most there were more disabled people hanged for witchcraft most most people hanged actually rather than burnt for witchcraft in the UK um, than non-disabled people whether they had mental health problems or indeed problems with skin conditions that were cancerous so but but the changeling thing is very interesting because it is the demon baby yeah. idea um, and I think that is very very potent even today and I think there's two there's kind of two things about eugenics one is the there's definitely a kind of soft eugenics now about 
about what you choose what kind of baby you want and, and you can decide whether to terminate. And that is, I absolutely support women's rights, right to choose. But there's something, I think, kind of um, more... Uh, there's a kind of austerity agenda that people feel is kind of contaminating their lives that some people feel has a kind of tinge of eugenics and a kind of spirit of the times that lots of people have said feels like the kind of beginning of the eugenics era to them. So a lot of people, like artists like Liz Crow, have talked about that, disabled artists like mm. Liz Crow have talked about that, that it feels a bit like what G.K. Chesterton, the um, great um, Catholic uh, writer called he talked about eugenics being no better no more to be bargained about than poisoning but he he's talked about it kind of poisoning the society at the time and i think there's a kind of there is a parallel there with the way in which the way in which disabled people are being talked about and the benefits are being talked about is quite poisoning is poisoning of the public rhetoric about disabled disabled people's kind of right to live an equal life I wouldn't go completely down the eugenics route, but I can understand where that's coming from, that it makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, so. in, in one women's group, it took five years. The women didn't know each other outside of the group. They all had escorts from different hospitals. And one day, one of them said, I know the worst word in the world. And everybody nodded in the group. And my co-therapist and I were utterly intrigued. What was this? And she said, I need everyone to say it. And they went round, amniocentesis. Oh, wow. I was absolutely gobsmacked. Um, and what they said was they might want a termination because having a baby was hard. And if a baby had lots of problems, it might be harder. They might not want it. But why did these rude, famous women on television say... Um, because I'm 40, I'm having an amnio, and if the baby's all right, why do they say that? Why can't they say, unfortunately, I don't think I'd be a good mother to a disabled baby. That would be all right. And we sent a letter to the programme complaining, no response. But that was so wonderful and gutsy. Uh, but it is the casual way amniocentesis is spoken about as if it's not applying to 10% of the population and to separate out that it's somebody that isn't born from killing you now you are alive is very hard to do when you know the country wishes you were dead it's a really complicated issue I work in the townships in uh, South Africa once a year um, through UCT, University of Cape Town on disability projects. And they've introduced this tiny little disability pension, which has put people in such danger in the townships for the same reason. They might get more money than everyone else around them. So while some are, feel really proud because of them, their family's got some food, and in a loving family... In a traumatised, aggressive family, there's an extra imprisonment of them. So it's, it's difficult whichever way we go. How does this compare to the Roma um, in terms of your, fo your focus on them and the way that all press cuttings, uh, well, from when, 
from when I was four because people thought I must be Roma. And when we lived when we lived in this council estate in Essex, there was one year where where a group were coming. There was an international festival of Roma that was being held in England, and. <laughs> I went and I was so thrilled to meet them because I thought that's where I must have come from. And, uh, and I can remember when I said, oh, they were really friendly, a neighbour saying they'll kidnap you, they steal children. And to see that those myths yeah. from sort of 60 years ago are st- no different, uh, that here come, here come the thieves, the, the, the dirty ones, the whatever... How did you find the Roma as a, as a as a topic? Well, interestingly enough, this is the the book, and this little boy, Dennis. Um, this was this was at Dale Farm, which is how I started. So this was actually with Irish travellers. This little boy, he was evicted from Dale Farm, and this is his actual suitcase um, um, that he took down the road um, from Dale Farm. And some of you probably saw the eviction. So this was the actual road. So he wheeled it down the road on the day of the eviction, which is, I think, the 19th of October, 2011. And he's still living there, actually. He's living on that road with his, with his mum and dad and um, other members of his family. Um, so I, I first went there in 2006 with The Economist, and that was before um, anyone was really interested in that story. And it, it was quite hard to get anyone... It was quite hard to persuade my editor that I should write anything. But I kind of just... I don't really remember why I was interested. I think John Prescott was wondering about whether to extend the, the leave for the Del Farm uh, residents to stay. So I must have just heard something. So I went along. And um, I, I suppose I, I, I kind of... I was I was surprised to find it very clean, you know. I, mm-hmm. I suppose I had some of, you know, the normal prejudices. <laughs> I, I was expecting it to be a bit messy, and in fact, it was very, very tidy, and everything was spotless inside. I hadn't really had any preconceptions about it being dirty, but it was actually really spotless. It was like completely different from the um, the stereotype, um, and. The other thing that struck me was the very strong and resilient family networks. And uh, the great irony about the child-stealing thing, of course, is that throughout Europe, and yes, just throughout Europe, from the, for centuries now, um, settled community has, of course, adopted and forcibly, forcibly adopted and taken children away from the Roma mm-hmm. and um, Irish traveller and uh, English gypsy populations. Um, in fact, forcibly adopting Scottish traveller children right up to the 1960s, which is Gosh. right, you know, within people's lifetimes. They were literally going into tents in Scottish highlands and dragging children out in the middle of the night, um, which is quite extraordinary to think that that's happening. Now, I was adopted in the 1960s. But it's quite extraordinary to think that that was happening um, the same, you know, in the same uh, years that... I was being adopted in completely different, different circumstances. Um, so I went to Dale Farm, and then I went away, and I wrote that book, and, but I kept in touch with the Dale Farm families. And so I suppose my understanding of both uh, uh, the Dale Farm travellers, and then, of course, I got to know English gypsies and newly arrived Roma over the, over the next eight years, as it is now, um, so my kind of understanding of those three intertwined communities kind of obviously has, has, has changed over that time. Um, and we've seen, you know, the terrible trauma of the eviction at Dale Farm. But also I think what's interesting is that 
Delphine was in many ways an aberration, but if you look at other smaller evictions, such as Meriden, which was in the Midlands, um, which was a Scottish traveller, um, Scottish traveller and English gypsy, it's very, very small uh, settlement, again on land that they owned but didn't have planning permission for. They really did experience um, quite open prejudice in a way that, in many ways, the Dale Farm travellers were very protected because the Catholic Church, very, very supportive of them. There were lots of local residents who really were rooting for them. In many ways, the Dale Farm travellers had a lot of, did have a lot of support and later had uh, uh, support from activists as well. So the, the Dale Farm travellers were always a little bit different, although they exhibited some very interesting similarities with other uh, travelling communities. Um, but if you looked at, say, the Scottish travellers um, at Meriden, they were much more what you'd call kind of classic family travelling group, a much smaller network. Um, and as I said, were really scapegoated by the press in a much more open way and by some members of the settled community. And um, the other thing to note about gypsies and travellers is that because housing conditions roadside and on site, some many sites are so bad, they experience very high levels of disability and chronic life-limiting conditions. So they, they often experience disability as well. So, for instance, in Meriden, Sanger Townsley, who you know, is one of um, a very, very forthright advocate for gypsy rights, also she has cerebral palsy and she's a sort of young woman Scottish traveller. So she got it in the neck for many reasons, not just for being a traveller. Mm. She got... Um, you know, jeered at for being a disabled person as well. So it kind of everything piled on, in on her. Mm. Um, having said that, I think she'd make a, a great MP and advocate for her community one day, you know, but I think it's hard to do it roadside. Um, so um, even uh, I've just been at Hay talking about romophobia with Damien Labat, who's editor of Traveller's Times, and even though the situation is very grim in many ways, I think there's also a real renaissance of gypsy Roman traveller culture across Europe, and there's lots that is very hopeful. Um, mm. So um, in many ways, despite the evictions, the homelessness, the romophobia, you are seeing a real... Um, you're seeing many... Um, seeing some journalists, some artists coming through and sort of taking their history for themselves and talking about it in a way that hasn't happened since the 1960s, and that's really quite hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't refer to the Vikings as economic migrants. <laughs> there's, there's a way that, that, yes. that if, yeah. if intellectual disability challenges our brains, that the, the traveller community challenges the boundaries that nations choose to erect when originally people just wandered and they wandered and settled and wandered and the the issue of now the sort of claiming your bit of sea or beach as belonging to it, it raises other issues of air rights and <laughs> sun rights for looking at sky or um but the way in which uh, the word traveller or Roma is used to cover very different groups, often wrongly, but the uh, people that are, or that are seeing or calling themselves travellers because they've lost a home, and it's not that they 
wish to travel um, anywhere, but that they've lost something and have become homeless. Um, and th those that have got a strong culture and uh, a belief that, and this is part of the loyalty to the family tradition. But I thought it was very helpful that you mentioned the issue about dirt, because I think we don't want to think of this these liminal issues around dirt and smell, um, which can affect our feelings about the homeless, the severely disabled now left in the community that don't tend to themselves. And we, we did a little colour picture book on washing for to show uh, people that were now responsible for washing themselves when they'd just been abusively showered. They didn't have to think about what is a smell people don't like or why do people get frightened if you've got bits of food on your clothes. The fear of tramps over getting near to something that smells is again going back to the fear we had when little, when we first learnt to be dry and felt so proud we weren't wetting ourselves or pooing ourselves and then the shame at the thought of being out of control and that feeling can get projected onto tramps who are another group that are victims of of awful crimes in the street and I, I haven't done anything about it yet and I'm rather hoping that you will. <laughs> there is one new research project that uh, is going on, on on homelessness and hate crime against homeless people that the police and one small housing association has just started to do and I think that thing about contamination is absolutely true. And there's a very sad kind of adverse consequence of that that I noticed actually with travellers, um, Irish travellers, um, is that a lot of the young girls will spend hours cleaning, absolutely hours. And, and um, to the extent, not only is, I mean, cleaning products are quite expensive, but they're also quite bad for you if you spend a lot of time doing it. But also, I know of two who've actually fallen off the top of caravans trailers cleaning the top cleaning the roof and that's partly this internalization of this mm. awful casual insult that people aren't clean and i've you know well put my house to shame the way people keep themselves clean and keep themselves clean roadside in awful conditions without running water or sanitation i mean it's seriously impressive if you go to dale farm now that there haven't been more um that, that the children haven't been iller than they have been, considering the conditions that they live in, really. Um, you know, the, it shows how clean their parents try and keep the place, considering I mean, how to do that without any running water is, is, is so impressive, really. And it's, if we think of the groups in poverty that work so hard to be clean, to have that bit as part of, of respect, but again, the feeling of dirtiness, um, I was just thinking of one of the things that led Freud to feel shame about his father was this, at the start of Nazism when a Nazi knocked uh, uh, Freud's father's hat off into the gutter oh. and said, put your hat on. And the, uh, Freud was expecting his father to fight that or disagree and he put it on with the dirt coming on his face. And, of course, the impact on the child of having your parent made dirty 
being socially stigmatised. Um, I didn't realise, shockingly, till the second edition of Mental Handicap and the Human Condition, which was 17 years later, and then had to be called Mental Handicap and the Human Condition, uh, an analytic approach to intellectual disability, because when I started the work, it was subnormality, then it was backward, then it was mental handicap, then it was learning disability, then it's intellect. When you can't bear the thing, the word changes as a euphemism. But it was a secret that one grandmother had a learning disability, because both grandmothers were illiterate. And my mother would say this was the situation of immigrant women and they weren't given an education. But actually, I knew perfectly well and wasn't allowed to know it. And it was only at the end I could see, uh, really after my mother died, that I could put in the book, her mother had a learning disability. And I thought, my goodness, this is me. I've been doing this work for over 30 years. And I kept a secret from myself that I wasn't allowed to properly know because of the, the stigma felt in the family where the pride was in covering it up mm. rather than saying it. So that the bit I'd like to um, end with before asking you for a last comment and, and seeing what comments and questions people have was this, uh, to, this wonderful moment in a disability group where one of the women after five years of therapy came in crying, really upset and angry, and everyone said, what's wrong? And she said, boys on my estate threw stones at me, shouted at me, called me spastic, spastic, and I said to them, you're right, I am a spastic, and you're lucky boys, because you're not, but you're rude boys, and I'm not rude. (laughs) Uh, We all gave her a huge round of applause, but you think of the emotional capacity and intelligence to know. She didn't say, um, uh, I'm not a spastic, I'm a person with an intellectual disability. She knew whatever the word used, it was she was the other that they were scared of. And she also wasn't saying, I'm lucky, I'm proud to be disabled. She said, you're lucky boys, you're not disabled, but you're rude. The level of capacity in that was just better than so many any of us could do in a bullying situation, um, and that one where where people are listened to and their meaning is supported, what they can do shocks all of us um, over their brilliant capacity to stay human in the face of appalling treatment. Catherine, what an uh, any particular comment at finishing this part of it before we open up um actually this one bit just just from what you just said um which is this i said i think one of the reasons why people are are scared of disability is because it reflects back part of something that, that they will become we will all become sus and so i think this is uh this kind of is this is what i believe anyway um Um, More obvious disabilities discomfort us because they confront us with our human frailties, our inevitable mortality writ large. We all grow old and infirm and die, but at those times of vulnerability, we still believe our humanity should be recognised beyond our looks, our ability to work or our intellect. 
Disability, therefore, is part of our human condition and cannot be set apart. So acknowledging what we want for ourselves, our respect for our innate humanity, irrespective of the state of our hate, of the, irrespective of the state of our minds or our bodies, is fundamental if we are to confront this crime. Because if what we want for ourselves, we should demand for everybody in our society, friendship, kindness, respect and humanity. It shouldn't be too much to ask, which is the same, obviously, yeah. for any group that gets scapegoated. But, you know, I think we all spend 11% of our lives as disabled people. That's the average, according to the World Health Organization. So it's, it, you know, it comes to us all. We don't spend 11% of our lives as gypsies, but we maybe we, ha- we all experience difference. And we don't have to be afraid of it. Yeah. I suppose I feel, because I work with people, as Valerie does, I work with people, I mean, work in the NHS, but I do think that what's happening at the moment, and you mentioned briefly the austerity era and the yeah. kind of rhetoric around, you know, people in need, not perhaps needing so much. I think I do think... I'm very concerned there's something very insidious going on at the moment that at the end of the line I think there'll be more hate crime against disabled people or anybody is different because it's, you know, in dividing people up into those who deserve and those who don't, um, there's a real sense of increasing deprivation which actually, why it's, I think it's so worrying, it's couched in terms of people actually should be independent so it's much harder to get social support and funding for social support for people unless they're very severely disabled um, and it, it, you know you can see that in all services now and I find that very worrying because I think it sort of translates into people on the street actually being seen as well, you should manage actually it, it's turned around the, the words somehow from sort of rights and support and encouragement to develop to something quite hateful I think it was Mark Neary, whose son, um, he campaigned a lot for his son, didn't he, to come out of institutional care, who called it care speak, where it's like you do one thing, um, you say, well, you must, you have a right to independent living, whereas actually what you're doing is you're just withdrawing all support, and then you say, well, you should, you'll be fine, you know. And it's this awful kind of travesty of using all the words that the disability movement kind of have, has, has, has used to get people out of these prisons against disabled people. It's, it's very, uh, it, it's quite specious, actually, isn't it? Very. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I slightly had a tangent, but I complimented um, somebody in a cafe about one of his staff being good, and his response was, oh, he's one of the better ones. And I think it was because it's, it, it's a new business model now that you get where people are quite happy for their staff to come and go. They make the jobs very easy to train people on, so you... You know, nobody stays long. There's no chance of getting a trade union or any of that kind of, you know, bothering. But this kind of, to do with power, I thought you talked about vulnerability. It's also to do with people who are powerless, though, isn't it? Like despising them, one of the better ones. You could have been talking about a thing. This person was actually, like, exceptionally good, but there was no appreciation of that. They don't want to recognise that people are good or develop them or have qualities. There's no interest. It's just, you know, it's a thing to fulfil a function. And just, you know, it's part of that idea of, you know, if, if you can't fulfil a function and fit in to what other people want you to do, then, you know, you're, you're not worth much. And I think it is this kind of, you know, capitalist, extreme kind of capitalist view as well, measuring people in terms of their productivity, what they can produce. So 
was just very struck by his contemptuous attitude to you know a work colleague. Just, but he said it as if it was a completely normal thing to say. He's one of the better ones. Mm. And it used to be high grade and low grade. And in schools uh, for, for the sight, for the partially sighted, children would come talking about, I'm not a total. You were a total or a partial. And so the pecking order is going to be no different um, in disability communities as in any other community. Passing as, passing as normal. Really so, so painful. But at a time where perceived economic problems are creating economic problems uh, in that people are using the fear to cut benefits and all the new assessments are leading to such terror, um, we are, I think that that's absolutely right, that it is frightening because then it's... Uh, who is lesser than? Who is getting the money I should be having? That primitive terror. I mean, we don't really know yet if it has ris- whether the hate crime rates have risen because there's been a rise in reporting, but no one knows whether that's because more people are reporting, which is a good thing, because they're because there's more confidence in reporting, or whether they're rising. There doesn't seem to have been a rise in reporting since the coalition took power, which is what you'd expect if they were linked to the austerity agenda. You might expect to take a bit longer. You might do, yeah. I mean, we certainly know there's anecdotal evidence with some cases of people calling people scroungers and then attacking them. There's a small number of cases where that's definitely linked. One example that's been given to me is that um, a report from another therapist of a young person they were working with who had a physical disability who was in a wheelchair and actually had become quite independent with support, lived on their own, um, was very able, you know, and had a job, and actually took great pride in their appearance, really. Um, you know, so they wore clothes like everyone else, looked good and so on, but they were in a wheelchair. And actually then getting abused on the street for looking good. But if they looked good, they couldn't be disabled. And actually, you know, they were, they were conning everybody. You know. Oh, you can't win then, can no. you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think the Paralympics was um, an interesting moment for that as well, wasn't it? Because lots of uh, disabled people were like, well, I can't actually, I'm not a Paralympian, I'm just a normal person uh, who's got a disability. Um, and, and feeling it didn't really help the normal working person with a disability. <laughs> Everyone at AC should look like Joan Collins. Yes, so that's exactly. a similar thing being done. <laughs> to women um, <laughs> and uh, it's the American disability rights movement that have got the lovely term for so called normal people the temporarily unimpaired and I think, <laughs> I think that's an absolutely lovely one <laughs> are people feeling depressed by what they've heard <laughs> what's the idea I work for um university I'm a counsellor and um, I spend my life seeing students Um, and I occasionally see students who've got Asperger's or autism and I'm struck by um, I'm sitting here thinking we have um, the university has um, a disability a diversity policy and we have um, a bullying and harassment policy but I see students often who I think are not 
in any way the subject of crime, but they're just extremely isolated. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking how, as an organisation, I think we fail students like that. And I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to what we can do. Mm. Um, and I'm working with people on a one-to-one basis and trying to empower them. But I think as an organisation, there's something missing. I, I, that's what I'm sitting here feeling at the moment. Oh, that is interesting, because there is, like, the NS, NUS has a disabled students organisation, I think, and um, the trouble is, there's, I think there's a grant that's under threat, isn't there, to disabled students at, yeah. the, very, at yes, the moment, which is going to mean, if you have fewer, then that's going to mean people get more isolated rather than less, but I don't know what's happened to that. It's under threat, but it hasn't been cut, has it? It hasn't happened. It's possibly going to happen next year, I because that would mean fewer students, which yeah. would increase the isolation. But are, are, are people, do you get the impression they're isolated because people don't want to mix with disabled students? Or what, what, do you get, what, why do you think there's isolation? I think my sense is that a, lo- a lot of students are afraid of engaging with people who've got disabilities. Oh, um, mm. and, and so that, you know, the prejudice is in the room. They just don't engage, they avoid them. And so the person is left feeling quite isolated and then doesn't know how to bridge the gap. Um, and, you know, obviously I can work with them as, and encourage them to do that, but it still feels like a void that's there in the, in the setting. Hmm. Well, if we think of the murder that's just happened in America, of the, the, the young man that was killing all the, the girls that rejected him, yeah. who, who was autistic and the kind of... The, the loneliness in the college setting uh, and the tiny number of counsellors and the short-term work mainly that has to be done because they're so little funded, I mean, that, that really is, is so painful. And we know that, for example, when thalidomide happened, that in nursery school and infant school it made no difference in fact, a child with thalidomide could be more popular because weren't they clever at painting with their toes and other little children wanted to know how to do that. But the moment it got to 11, there was more a divide over the meaning of physical and mental activity. And therefore, to have a genuine friendship, this is the most, I think, unbearable thing um, as a therapist as well, when you hear people um, say, um, I go to a club, it's supposed to be, it's for the able-bodied and, and the disabled, and you've got all these people that, they wouldn't go out with me. They're pretending it's a youth club, but these other ones are coming to help and feel good about themselves, but they're not going to really be my friend. Um, and I found dealing with that in, in one group uh, where somebody... Uh, was saying she'd got a job as an assistant uh, in a school and she hoped she'd find a boyfriend among the teachers and there was this awful pause and I thought, are they ready for me to say something or not? And I said, I wonder if everyone's looking at me because there's this uh, sad feeling that actually if there was a teacher in the school that wanted to go out with a woman with a severe intellectual disability, there might be something wrong with him. Because on the whole, people look for people that are similar. And I waited to sort of be attacked. I felt the the cruelest thing to say. And the relief was enormous. Because somewhere, everybody knows really, um, that what what a small group basically is going to be anybody's genuine friendship pool 
as opposed to acquaintances. But when it comes to a boyfriend, girlfriend, taking in societal views mean you get so many men with disabilities saying, I don't want normal men's leftovers. And the disabled woman therefore being at the bottom of the pile. And it's similar even where there is an intellectual brilliant capacity, but that there is a problem alongside, like Asperger's, um, where somebody finds the literalness exhausting. Um, and how do we help people um, to bear the fact that just being who they are is going to limit their choice? But in a way, it's what everyone's faced. Uh, that that apart from the sort of tiny number of heart throbs, people on the whole go through rejection. But if you're taken by an escort to a special club where if two people kissed, there'd be a case conference <laughs> and you're taken in a special car back, you don't have an experience of going through normal rejection. You only have horrible, traumatic, catastrophic ones. There is, though, there is the one, there is that quite nice club, though, isn't there? It's called the Outsiders Club, that Tuppy... Oh, yes. Yeah, that actually does, that is more fun, I think, that actually your students might like. I'm to see, because I put it at the back of the book. The um, Outsiders Club. I, I think it's called the Outsiders Club. Um, and was this the finding the sex? This was finding the sex partner one. Yeah, but and it caused all sorts of ethical debates oh, with whole it? areas oh. not letting anybody go, and the whole issue but of whether they're eighteen, they're eighteen, they can do what they want. Oh yes, but it where somebody requires someone else to get them somewhere, yeah. then you have the ethics of the staff group. Can someone with a disability um, go to a prostitute? Um, if they are multiply disabled and they've never found a partner, is it something that they should be accepting with pain or should they be allowed to do what other people do um, as a form of self-injury? Uh, because it is a form of self-injury to uh, want to pay for a relationship. Um, so Tuppy's Club. Tuppy's Club. It is called the Outsiders Club. I can't find it's, it. Right it there, there were there there are very mixed views about it, and but it parents be looking at work work keen on it either. I can't actually find. Oh no, there it is Outsiders Club two thirty, even indexed. Um, but I, I mean, other people found it apparently quite good. Oh yes. Um, no, I I knew people that really felt thrilled at being in, included because. Being sexually excluded from ordinary connection is another byproduct that often comes with disability. And very painfully, you get people saying it, who are in a, abusive relationships, um, but they weren't frightened of getting close to me. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons why the hate crime happens is because people are so desperate for friendship, they'll take anything going. And it it's, offers dating opportunities, friendship and peer support, I wrote. I assume this is still true, three years on. Um, I think she, she monitors it. It's not completely unmonitored or unregulated. And there's a small fee, I think, probably. Oh, she's brilliant. But she's, she's, rather, a she's brilliant a disabled woman idea. herself and um, better than probably anything else, better than them going on Match.com and feeling totally rejected. Probably, I would have thought. 
this is online? I think it's online, yeah, the Outsiders Club, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm kind of dating expert. About, uh, the, the undateable, the TV programme. Yes. Yeah. What do you think about yes. it? Yeah. Well, I, the, 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 the people with disabilities I knew that watched it were thrilled with it. So other people were saying, oh, this is exposing them, this isn't fair. But there was real pleasure and excitement at having a chance at taking part in celebrity culture like other people do. So there is this wish to uh, protect people with a disability from more risk, which ends up being killing them by kindness. The episode I saw was really moving, actually. I only saw one, but there was a really moving day. <laughs> and the marriages of people with disability are as successful as others. This was uh, Janet Mattinson's research at the Tavistock Clinic in the 1980s. And of course, because the connection is better for everybody's mental health. And there were feelings that people couldn't ethically properly marry because at a certain level, level of disability they wouldn't understand or ethically couldn't take part in a sexual relationship because they wouldn't understand, but how much of any adult sexuality is their chronological age? <laughs> but our chronological um, age, all the ages we've ever been are in us as a sexual person, and if we were being evaluated over how much of it was adult, then plenty of people wouldn't be there. Just think of Valentine's Day and all the Pooh Bear loves diddums and all the <laughs> regression to younger ages. What you're talking about now, because I think there's a huge movement now that's going to make it harder for people with intellectual disabilities to marry. Um, I have great mixed feelings about it, but we are being asked to do a lot of capacity assessments now mm. on pe people's capacity to consent to marriage and sexual relations. And that's, that's, I mean, this is from the Mental Capacity Act, which was 2005. Yeah. And it's a really difficult issue, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I think all over the country, people are trying to find ways of asking questions that actually do make sense of whether somebody understands what marriage is. And everybody I know who's doing those assessments says, yeah, but what is it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite interesting, though. And, you know, and then culturally, you get a lot of different ideas and, and so on. I mean, is it, but is that because of forced marriage? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, it's linked it to that. It kind of came from It came, the two that. have come together, mental capacity and forced marriage. Yeah. So it's, it's and the concern about uh, girls with a learning disability yeah. when, when they go back uh, in summer holidays to families, countries, the fear that they're going to be married off and killed in order to get a British passport yeah. first. Yeah. I just wondered if you know whether, in the research that's been done so far, whether there's a substantial difference in the motivation of hate crime towards Roma and sort of other sorts of racist hate crimes. That's a really good question, because, again, on the hate crime towards Roma, there's really bad evidence, because I think there's been poor reporting. So when I was doing the crime chapter, um, I couldn't find a single hate crime that had been reported against Roma, a serious hate crime. There'd been very, very few reported um, um, at the kind of uh, sort of racial prejudice level, but not the really serious ones, which I knew were happening. So, for instance, the Johnny Delaney case up in um, Liverpool. So he's a young Irish traveller boy. This was 10 years ago last um, summer. It, it was a clear racist case. So Johnny was... Um, 
he had red hair and um, he was kicked to death on some waste ground and he was kicked to death for being a gypsy and in fact he wasn't, he was an Irish traveller boy and I went and visited his mum and his family who are still absolutely devastated by what happened to him um, ten years on and in fact his dad I think died of grief a couple of years later but not before they'd really campaigned because they, again the crime was not named for what it was because they got the boys on a manslaughter charge and the the, the investigating officer was absolutely clear it was a racist crime and they couldn't guess it because they couldn't, couldn't find out which boy had shouted um, the, the racist epithets. They couldn't pin it. And that would have been, I think, the first hate crime, even though actually technically it would have happened before the hate crime... Um, it would have happened before the hate crime legislation was in place because it was... Yeah, it was 2003, and it came into force 2005. No, no, the racist hate, no, the race hate crime legislation was already in place because of Stephen Lawrence, so it would have counted, but it wasn't. In, but they didn't get it, and it clearly was. Um, so that was a really missed opportunity, and it, I just feel that case has never hit the headlines in the same way that the Stephen Lawrence case was, and I feel it should have, it should have the resonance. It should have some, at least some of that resonance, because it was a clear. It's had the same effect on the community, you know, that after effect, which is what rate, which is what hate crimes have, is that they have this cumulative effect over time, especially mm-hmm. if they're not dealt with properly, is they have a, um, you know, because they're not punished appropriately, they, they cause a kind of problem over time. And that's what you see in a lot of hate crimes, I think. And because the community at large is not, seen to have recognised the crime for what it was, I think it has a it, it, it doesn't help, which is what you need is for a community almost to say we believe you this was a racist crime or we believe you this was a disability hate crime, you need the whole community to say we are with you on this, which is what you get with race hate and now homophobic hate to some extent and disability hate and I think we're, we're way behind with Roma, Gypsy and Traveller um, Crime, which is you know they're always seen as the perpetrators and never the victims, um, and I think we, we we're not even there yet really. But I do find it quite interesting that on a governmental level, the Roma and travellers are treated relatively well in Britain compared to on the continent. Yeah, that is true because actually, if I was talking to, I think it was Damien Labar who I did who was at Hayworth, and we were, I think he'd just come back from somewhere, um, Eastern Europe. Um, and he was saying it is funny because it isn't good here, but when you compare it to Eastern Europe, it's kind of like a walk in the park. Because the, but it's because the situation in East Europe is so horrific. Yeah, but even with say France, when there's loads, yes. you know, loads of Roma just live in squatter camps. Exactly, and yeah. you have forced evictions, and, and people are even dying in those forced evictions. It's absolutely true. So the situation is good, but it's not very good. It's better, but. And you do have Jitsi Roma Traveller Months. But a lot of that change has come about because people have pushed for it. It didn't just sort of happen because the government went, we will do this. It happened because people worked towards it over time. But also uh, the media still sees, you know, gypsies and travellers as being open. I mean, there seems to be no restriction on what's said. Yeah, I, actually, I think during the child-stealing fury earlier this year, there was a bit of a step change because there was the really nasty stories 
Um, but you mm. also saw almost immediately you saw journalists checking themselves and actually asking, is this true for a change? And you saw the beginning of voices from inside the community being given a platform to answer that back. So Outside of like the Guardian? And the- yeah, so you saw Jake Bowers, who used to be the editor of Traveller's Times on Channel 4, Channel 5, um, going on this morning. So things that hadn't ha- wouldn't have happened, I think, two or three years earlier. So I think you did see a sort of step change in people going, well, we're not even sure this story is true for a start, and also allowing people from the community to actually get a kind of fair right to reply. Um, so I think things are changing a little bit for the better. Yeah. And it just... It, it takes a, a person that... Um, that it made such a difference, hate crime being named from from Catherine's work that had a, a huge cascading um, effect. And w- with Stephen Lawrence, it's a really good colleague, DCI Clive Driscoll, who is one of the few uh, detectives I've sort of really worked with over a long period and deeply trusted. Um, and he really stayed there working like crazy to get that get those convictions um and of course the fact that Stephen was loved by his parents and that they spoke out so much as well but where you've got one officer that says this isn't right um because again you can have groups that are worn down by all that's happening everywhere and don't uh, want to feel the specific pain of a group where something criminal's happened against them. And, and he, he did. Um, so that if, there's, if there is this, this, the effect of no place uh, to call home will percolate, but how much do we uh, speak out generally um, over over difference, um, I, I I remember in in one particular college feeling incredibly aware of how little spoken uh, about class difference in accent was spoken about, and the different response to students that had upper class and middle class accents, and when people say. Um, Britain is a classless society. It's rather amazing to think of which area did they grow up in that to to not get all the different bits along the way or the way we haven't stood up for upper-class and aristocratic children sent off to boarding school at eight and all the trauma that's been properly noted now uh, because they were a powerful group in terms of money uh, and privilege, but the uh, abuse of boys, especially um, uh, in in boarding schools, has had a, will will also explain why we get the parliament we get. That if you've got people that have been sent away from their mothers at eight, have had to be self reliant when they can't be, then they're not going to be the group that are going to best feel for the plight of those that have been dispossessed of everything. So the more we can bear to notice everyone else's difference and all the differences around us, just to be more sensitive to assuming because we're speaking the same language doesn't mean we're talking about the same things, 
the safer a society we will get. So thanks to Rowan Arts for getting us together as, as, as part of the festival here, um, to you all for coming and participating, and thanks to Catherine for her real uh, life-changing campaigning writing. Thank you. Well, thank you, Valerie, as well, <laughs> for your work.